Faction Podcast. I'm the host, Nevada Ryan. Today I'm speaking with Jesse Sharkey. Jesse is a Chicago school teacher who, up until recently, was president of the famed Chicago Teachers Union. In this conversation, we talk about Jesse's experience leading both the 2012 and 2019 CTU strikes. We talk about other things like the marketization of education, the effects of family wealth and class status on student grades and test scores standardized testing, the implications of the looming ed tech industry, and much more. Jesse has a wealth of experience as both an educator and a labor organizer, and a lot of great insights that I enjoyed hearing about, and I trust you will as well. And now I bring you Jesse Sharkey. All right, I'm here with Jesse Sharkey. Jesse, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me on. Uh, before we get started, would you mind just giving us a little bit of your background? Who are you? What are you up to professionally? Sure. Uh, my name is Jesse Sharkey. I am a member of the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, currently, I'm working as a teacher at South Shore International High School, um, public school on the city south side. Uh, prior to that, for 12 years, uh, I was an officer of the CTU, first as the vice president and then as the president of the union. Um, and prior to that, I was a classroom teacher. So um, I'm, I'm back to my roots. Gotcha. Great. And I was just reading, this is actually kind of fortuitous and neither of you and I didn't plan this obviously, but you know, yesterday I was reading the 10 year anniversary of uh, the 2012 CTU strike. Um, you know, maybe we'll start there. It, reflecting back on that event, which was um, uh, quite important for the entire country, I'd say in many ways. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, um, you, did you uh, feel that things turned out the way you'd wanted or um, maybe a little, gone both ways so what do you think i mean i first thing i think is it's hard to believe that's been a decade <laughs> um uh the, you know uh, time flies by i you know the um the strike in 12 was um was it was important in the country I, I you know i think it it changed a bunch of the conversation that people were having about schools at the time we were very conscious that there were a set of changes going about in education, um, really driven by um, a kind of a corporate test score driven edu um, uh, education reform model, uh, which we thought were doing real harm to public education and um, you know, didn't, didn't serve uh, students or teachers uh, or their parents and communities well. And uh, you know, the reason we were in office was to do something about that. That was, you know, the, our, all of our formative experiences had to do with um, schools being labeled failures, people who are uh, dedicated veteran educators being driven out of the profession, um, you know, students for schools being starved of resources and then having the students themselves blamed, uh, schools being closed. Uh, it was just, um, it, it, it produced a, a layer of people, you know, we formed, uh, you know, we talked, we organized, we formed a network. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the movement of teachers to try to be active in our union was part and parcel of a broader education justice movement in which the strike was uh, one expression of our desire to change things, but not the only one, um, although it'll be an important one. Mm -hmm, definitely. And, and remind our listeners, what were some of the major um, outcomes of that, uh, some of the victories for the CTU? Yeah, I, I, the, the, a bunch of the, uh, the, the things that precipitated the strike had to do with um, the the way that the Board of Education, which is appointed by the mayor here, uh, and so therefore, um, you know, it was Rahm Emanuel, who was formerly um, President Obama's chief of staff and, um, you know, very much a corporate education reformer. Hopefully we can talk about that more sure. uh, later in the podcast. He, he, for example, he, he there's some really interesting uh, appointments that he made uh, where he was appointing kind of ed tech reformers to the Board of Ed. So people who are simultaneously promoting um, their, uh, their disrupting you right. know, online <laughs> ventures, uh, you know, as a for-profit enterprise and at the same time supposedly being the stewards of the public education system, uh, you know, and, and doling out those contracts and doing both the those things at the same time. Um, uh, but anyway, you know, the, the, the district was very, very aggressive. I, um, I, just to give, 
you know, I'm not sure your listeners will appreciate this, but think about it, it means a lot. You know, the, the CTU is a, is a long-standing traditional union as we go all the way back to the 1930s and before. Um, we had a mature contract, you know, a contract of a couple hundred pages. You know, a lot of that's salary tables, but, um, but it was, you know, something that had, you know, a lot of writing about work rules, everything from um, the way classes are distributed to the way people get materials in school to, you know, and the board basically came and said, we're going to eviscerate that contract. And they gave us a proposal that took a 200 page contract and reduced it to 10 pages. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it included things like, um, you know, very directly and crudely tying teachers' ratings to um, student test scores, um, firing teachers whose, you know, whose test ratings of their students weren't high enough, um, getting rid of tenure, a whole series, you know, really a whole series of labor reforms um, that were aimed at making teachers less secure uh, and trying to, uh, and, and trying to retool the, the education industry. And, and that was probably the greatest single precipitating uh, element of the strike, which is that uh, it was very much we conceived of it as a defensive strike. Mm. And there was a, there were a lot of things that we wanted to raise about resources and, uh, um, you know, re really schools that we thought our children deserved. Um, but first, we had to, like, not get killed, <laughs> which is um, which is how the strike proceeded. You know, the most I think probably the most important gains in the strike had to do with, you know, with, with blunting or stopping some of the the, um, uh, um, the concessions or rollbacks, which they wanted to make against against teachers. Yeah, the kind of onslaught of that of that um, corporatizing uh, movement. Yeah, well, it eventually, I think as a lot of people remember, maybe not, hopefully they do. I mean, it, you really sparked uh, inspiration in you know, all, all around the country. I think West Virginia, Arizona, <clears throat> uh, Los Angeles, you know, a lot of people, uh, maybe, maybe not immediately, but certainly years later, um, followed suit. So that was certainly um, very helpful to a lot of people. Um, yeah, but let's dive into what you had mentioned about the kind of corporatizing um, influence, because that's what particularly influences me is this idea that... Um, everything ought to run as a business. Um, right. I was just reading uh, Mark Fisher's um, Capitalist Realism, and he, he called that business ontology, this idea that everything should be kind of horseshoed into a kind of market model. And um, I mean, I could talk forever about how there are lots of industries and institutions that ought not to run that way. Um, you know, book publishing schools, is one, schools are, are another <laughs> right. one, yeah. Um, so that that really is, I think, one of the, basically the, the major challenges to, uh, I would say not even just public schooling in general, public schooling in particular, but even just education in general, this idea that we kind of need to um, prove that there's some kind of productivity you know, measure in the same way that we would have, you know, quarterly sales goals or something. There's something kind of perverse about that. Um, so w to what do you attribute that a kind of ideological uh, shift, which I think is, at this point, it's so deep in the water supply. I think that people don't even uh, flinch at it. They just assume, well, yeah, you know, you have to be, um, you have to be productive and efficient, and you have to be um, demonstrating that you're, you know, making a, a profit in in some domain. Um, and obviously, when it comes to education, that type of process, um, you know, it kind of it clashes with what goes on in a classroom. Right? How do you measure uh, those things other than, of course, kind of um, yeah, test scores and things like that, which you know, we can talk more about. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, I mean, I, I, th I think you're right. I, I, I mean, I do think there's a, a kind of a, um, there's a, 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 this assumption that the, that the private market, it provides better solutions to every problem. Um, and, you know, it comes into the education world sort of unproven where it's been implemented, it, it actually has been a disaster. It actually, it, it hasn't produced better results. And, and I just, the example that leaps to my mind is charter schools. Um, and we are told that, that charter schools would produce better results because they would, um, they'd be privately managed. Uh, they would have, you know, they, they'd be um, essentially sensitive to the market forces uh, in the education world. And we can talk about what that what market forces mean in the context of schools. Um, um, and that they would produce much better results. And then there was a minute there when when the charter school operators were actually were touting were, were claiming that they had better results. Um, 
you know, I think there's something on the order of 115 charter schools operating in Chicago now. Mm. Uh, it turns out that like, you know, if you, uh, charter schools require people to apply into them. So if you, have, so if you actually, if you compare charter schools, which take kids by lottery, but you have to apply and you compare them to magnet schools in Chicago, which are the same thing, they take kids by lottery and you have to apply. It turns out there's virtually no difference between the, between the achievement of the two. Um, what is true though, is that charter schools are much more expensive to operate, um, you know, from a, from a, uh, in terms of the management and administrative costs that, um, you know, they're smaller, they have a lot more layers of, of, of management. Honestly, public schools are brutally efficient when it, in terms of sort of how relatively flat they are, how little, you know, typical Chicago public school with 400 or so uh, students in it, you know, has has a principal and maybe an, an uh, uh, you know, an AP, um, an assistant principal, and that's it. Uh, and, you know, show me it, shoot, McDonald's has, has more management. Than that. <laughs> um, and the reason it works is because Teachers, generally speaking, know what their jobs are, um, and um, uh, so okay. So you know, so then people say, well, you know, there should be more management. So you should expect more productivity out of people, and that's what charter schools did. But charter schools actually haven't haven't produced um, better achievement, and arguably they they've got they have access to a set of private resources that the other public the other public schools don't, etc. Um, anyway, you know, they they just don't have good proof for that. Um, but I do think it's I, I think it's and in, in, in for the most part, it's ideological. You know, they're, they're, mm-hmm. it's coming from a place of, you know, this is a precept. Um, this is an ontology, if you will. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, <clears throat> so let's talk about the, the market forces that you had mentioned. So what exactly is a school held hostage to when it comes to um, something like a, a market force? Like, what does that even mean? Does it mean that well, we can- it, put- right. It, it did. I mean, one of the things that I thought was interesting about the way education reform came into the schools is that, uh, of, of course, uh, you know, you can set up a mechanism by which the schools have to, you know, c- compete. But what is that mechanism? You know, is it the grades of students? Is it, you know, what is it? And, you know, I, I really think that the, the big important kind of insight, for me at least, was understanding that, that the test score competition was going to play the role of, you know, if you think about it in the private sector, it would be revenue, you know, right, you, exactly. know you need to have gross receipts in order to compete, Yes. Um, you know, your profit rates ultimately, and in some really important way, uh, that's what test scores were going to get made into. Um, of course, the elite private schools, that doesn't operate that way, right? Uh and um, certainly not the, the sort of the, the suburban schools and wealthy neighborhoods um, don't, don't operate that. You know, they're not going to like close the, you know, New Trier or uh, Maine East or, you know, one of the fancy schools on the North Shore of Chicago um, if they have a dip in the test scores. Um, but, but the idea was, you know, you, you have to have a measurable output. And test and, and the test scores of students were going to be that measurable output. And so, so you know, there was a whole series of, um, policy changes, you know, you test every student three times a year, you have a, a beginning of the year test, a middle of the year test, and an end of year test, so your BOY, MOY, and, and, and end of year, um, and so you, so the idea then is you can, you can actually see the amount of educational gain that each student made every year and attribute that back to teachers, um, um, you, you know, uh, if, if you aggregate it, you can attribute it to the school, and so, you know, schools then, um, are given a measure. They're given a report card that the parents look up, and so and and so in school districts, school districts make resource allocation decisions based on those report cards and scores as well. And so there's so and it, they're trying to on a whole number of different levels create uh, an internal uh, market distribution or sort mm-hmm. of market of resource distributions, um, i.e. market, to um, you know based on those test scores. Um, uh, you know, parents, yeah. you know, parents might not go to the school if it's if the te- if the report card is if it has a bad report card. Um, uh, teachers will potentially could lose their jobs if the test scores are are, are low. Uh, at least that was their idea, and uh, you know, resources could be withheld from the school, and then ultimately schools will be closed. 
Yeah. It sounds almost like a, the way like the IMF treats like countries, I give them a rating based on that. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so let's talk about why uh, the legitimacy, let's say, of using test scores as a proxy for education. Um, I mean, yeah. I, uh, I, I mean, and by the way, like if, if test score. I mean, we, we could come up with some problems with, you, you know, uh, with markets um, in, you know, in general, they don't always do a good job accounting for human need. Um, but like, you know, it, if we could show that test scores really were a great measurement for all the things that a school was supposed to be doing, then some of this stuff would be less, would, would be less harmful, but they're not. And, uh, you know, they have a high stakes standardized tasks, which is what we're talking about here, have a really harmful effect um, and undermine a whole bunch of things that school needs to be important for. Um, school should be about the unlocking of human potential. And human potential exists on a lot of different axes. And, uh, you know, I, to me, it always helps to think about, for example, I grew up in rural Maine and, um, there were a lot of kids who were going to graduate from school and uh, work in a mill or drive a truck or, or, or what have you. And the most important thing in their school experience was senior prom and the homecoming game. It, it was the pin, it was, it was sort of the apex there. They weren't going to be that young and that free in the future. You know, they were, they were looking at work and marriage and family responsibilities, etc. cetera. Um, it, it would be really a problem if the way if the way we think about education is that we're going to judge all those kids as failures. They weren't. They were they were country kids who, uh, for whom school was not was serving a something of a social need. It was serving. Um, it taught them a set of skills, but it certainly wasn't their SAT experience. You know, their SAT score was not the most important thing in in their high school experience. And and. You know, if you don't believe me, just go to a working class school and look at how look at what people do around prom. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like it, people are obsessed by that. And uh, and I'm not arguing that we shouldn't, um, you know, that we that, that academic preparation for college and whatnot isn't important. But but it's it's weird, like what we decide counts and what and what doesn't count, um, because I, I hope we would understand that, you know, playing an instrument or having a sport or being involved in extracurricular things or learning about art um, are, are all things that big sections of our population really get a lot of fulfillment uh, around and may help make people healthier and more productive members of society. And all those things drop out. So, so one thing about standardized testing is that it massively narrows the curriculum and it narrows the scope of what it is that we're trying to do in school. It becomes less about human development and much more about kind of a, a narrow set of measurable um, uh, skills that can be that can be put on you know on a um, on a standards based uh, high stakes test. Yeah. So you're kind of um, reducing a student to a particular data point and not um, incorporating anything else about their capacities or their um, their abilities. So there, there's certainly that. Um, and then also there's another issue, you touched on this um, and I didn't expect to go this way, but I'm happy to. Um, uh, you touched on something that um, I read about in Michael J. Sandel's book, uh, The Tyranny of Merit, um, about meritocracy. And he said one, uh, one particular scourge of meritocracy is that you have uh, an issue, an instance in which there's meritocratic kind of demoralization or humility where you have people who, um, because they're judged on, um, you know, their ability to, you know, ace the SAT or, or to get certain grades. Um, and because that's what our current market society, uh, ends up rewarding just so happens to be that case right now, um, that we basically tell them, well, you're, you, it's kind of a failure to measure up. Um, whereas he, he opts for something else by saying, well, you know, it's not really um, the fault of someone that they have talents that our market happens to reward. Um, and it's not someone's fault that they don't have those talents. So to uh, create a class of people who um, are sort of outcast because they, um, you know, don't have SAT prep skills, you know, um, is basically not, it's, it, it's quite inimical to uh, basically social cohesion, let's right. say, and, and um, the kind of shared vision that a functioning commonwealth requires. So you can't really have a society that keeps reproducing that kind of demoralized class. Right. No, I, 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 
that that's that's exactly right. I part of it. Uh, I mean, I, I do an interesting thing with my with my students, um, where I try to make um, uh, people aware of the degree to which um, um, SAT questions are a lot easier if you ever speak and receive standard English, um, and um, you know. If, if your parent is like a college, is a lawyer or, you know, a book editor or something like that, um, there's a set of things that you get by virtue of the way the conversation goes at your dinner table. Yes. Um, that you don't get if you're, um, if your parents are, you know, bus mechanics, um, you, you know, or do clerical work, um, you, you know, and often don't have college educations. Um, and it's one of the other features of standardized tests is that they, they, they systematically uh, tell people and then reinforce the message that, 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 that some people are smarter and better and have, have this kind of merit by virtue of what their class background is, was growing up. And there's other people that aren't worthy and are bad students and are, you know, are, are, are you know, not smart and destined to fail, um, again, by virtue of what their class background is growing up. And uh, you know the, the, the thing that we have to keep in mind is that one of the best predictors, I think the best predictor, right, of, of how well a school is going to do on the on a standardized test is the class background of the student's parents. So like literally you can go in the school's parking lot, you can count up the number of fancy cars yeah. and have a better idea how that school is going to do on standardized tests than you are by um, and using any, any of the other measures that we have. And which isn't to say that, that uh, you know, that for in an individual, for the experience of an individual student, time on task with relevant instruction and, and all that kind of stuff doesn't actually help. And, and of course, there's people who learn that set of skills. Um, but but the, the place where I think it really becomes the most pernicious, and, well, obviously, on the so social level, it's a problem. Um, but when you start thinking about, like, for those individual schools that have this set of really high stakes decisions that, that are tied, it's not just about, okay, did the well, it is probably, does an individual student get into the selective enrollment school? That's something which is happening in seventh grade in Chicago. You know, it's based on your test score on a selective enrollment uh, exam. Um, but then it's also, will your teacher be fired? Um, will a school be given an F on a report card and have people stop coming to it? Um, will your school be closed? Then that means the neighborhood has a closed building in the middle of it. Um, uh, help, you know, those led to exoduses in, in, in population. And there's a whole bunch of really pernicious social effects that all come based on that, um, on, on the way that standardized testing shows up. It just seems like a, just such a, a destructive domino effect that um, it almost, almost a feedback loop. Um, yeah, I was reading, uh, there's another book on meritocracy, you, you may have heard of it, um, from a, a Yale Law School professor named Daniel Markovitz called uh, The Meritocracy Trap. Um, are you reaching for it back there? Uh, no, I'm, um, uh, I, I, but yeah, I mean, there's, uh, keep going, I'll, I'll, I'll find this book. Sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, what you were saying about counting the cars, right, it is so incredibly true. So he talks a lot about how, um, you know, a well-to-do family in, you know, upper, whose parents are, say, in upper management or lawyers or uh, doctors and so on, they have the resources to train their children to, uh, you know, get the best SAT scores, to get the best grades. And so they basically have a leg up just permanently on, on those grounds alone. And so it's meritocracy is actually almost like a new aristocracy in that it that um, is able to kind of have this dynastic um, quality where, you know, yeah, like you said, you, there's some students whose parents can't afford a private concierge one-on-one uh, -on -one level tutor. And um, so they're definitely at a disadvantage um, on that alone. And if you take a look at um, SAT, ACT scores, and you map them against uh, not just income, but wealth, they, they map almost perfectly, perfect. right? You know, it's not to say that a rich kid can't, um, you know, is always going to do well because I've tutored kids who, uh, you know, come from well-to-do families and, and still, you know, just squander their opportunities. Um, but at the same time, or that so a poor kid's going to do poorly. I mean, there are poor kids that are bookworms and you know, yes, exactly. So, um, but for the most part, yeah, it is the case that the class background is is a huge, almost guaranteed indicator of how they're going to do on uh, any kind of standardized tests. Yeah. Now, I was just looking for, there's an older book on my bookshelf. Um, your listeners won't be able to see me pawing around in my books behind me, uh, you know, about the, um, the, the origins of standardized testing, uh, you know, high-stakes standardized testing as IQ tests and all the ways yes. in which 
the, sort of the, the explicitly racist set of ideas that, you know, that were about for the U.S. Army, they were about sorting sorting people into officer material and not officer material, and were attached to all kinds of, um, you know, racist theories about um, about ethnic and racial backgrounds. Yes. Yeah, it's, definitely. It's, it's it's deeply in it's it's deeply entwined in the history of these things. That's actually where it's from. Yeah. Um and I the guy who started a uh, fair test, I forget his name, but he wrote a, a quite a long uh, article in I want to say the monthly review. Um can't remember where, but it was a kind of a a long form, I don't know, maybe 10,000 word uh, you know, history of standardized tests and he definitely chronicled that exact thing. Um, but that reminds you of something that I, I think I heard Adolf Reed talking about a while ago with respect to um, industrial organizational psychology, where it kind of has its roots there as well, where you had, um, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, you had, um, you know, industrialists who needed different types of workers to do, you know, uh, different types of things with a division of labor. And you had these psychologists that were like, oh, yeah, well, you know, um, we've got this data that shows that Irish are really good at digging ditches and the Poles are really good at working on railroads and the Southern Alpines are better at doing this and then Nordics are better at crunching numbers. And, and so those kind of Victorian prejudices sort of like made their way into um, the, um, you know, the, the quote unquote science. And yeah, a lot of that's where um, the IQ stuff came from as well as that is a way to kind of hierarchically kind of organize people based on uh, at one point it was race and then now it's intelligence, but it's basically the same thing, just masquerading as something else. I, you know, I, I do think there's a degree to which um, there's been some backlash um, uh, in our society broadly against the overuse, misuse of high stakes standardized tests. And I, I also think that the one of the things that I was hoping we could talk about uh, a little bit, I mean, high stakes testing is, of course, summative testing. And, and as speak, there's two forms of assessment. There's the assessment you do with after instruction, uh, where you uh, where you sum stuff up, you try to understand how much students you know, know and are able to do. And there's formative testing uh, or formative assessment. And formative assessment are, are you know, all the things that we do in order to form um, our plan and our strategy for our continued uh, instruction. You know, it could be as simple as saying, you know, you got it, you with me? And if the student looks confused and so then you, I got I to gotta explain it again. And if, all, and if everyone says, yeah, I got it, Mr. Starkey, you know, keep going. Um, then I go on to the next, the next topic. Um, so uh, formative assessment. Um, you know, the classic form of assessment is when your teacher would give you a little vocabulary quiz or a little, you know, or something on the read. Did you do the reading? It's really designed to be some big thing. It's just like, did you know, um, did you get it? Are you with me? Or, or looking over someone's shoulder while they're working on a math problem. That's a, essentially a form of assessment. One of the things that I think we, we need to start getting our heads around is the degree to which education technology and this goes back to a point I was raising earlier about um, the, the, the person, this one, Deborah Quazzo, who's in the Board of Ed at the same time she was a managing partner for GSV Ventures, um, is the way education technology aims not just to um, uh, um, give us um, summative assessment, but it aims to also dominate control formative assessment. It, it, it aims to be the tool that provide the tools that teachers use to do all the little comprehension checks and provide a, a whole package to to really control that part of instruction, and and I think that like um, that's a that's a big deal. I mean that that begins to start getting at the question of just the the relation because education in the U.S. You know, yeah, there was an attempt I think to to you know, by, by, by controlling summative assessment and, and attaching stakes to it, there was an attempt to, to, um, to, to control and standardize the way education worked. But the truth of the matter is education in the U.S. is really decentralized. You know, it's, it's controlled by localities, you know, it's under state control, the state boards of ed, and it, but then with really different circumstances in a lot of different places. And, um, you know, for better or worse, that winds up being fairly participative to our democratic enterprise. Um, if everyone's using Google Classroom, which I, I'll, I, I haven't seen the numbers, it would be really interesting to see how many people use Google Classroom. It's a powerful tool, but so many things go through Google Classroom now. You know, the assigning of homework, the assessing of things, the, you know, the, you know, during the pandemic, people are running Google Meets, you know, they're running all their classes today. And that, that platform is, 
man, I, it's, 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 it's even hard to disentangle that from current practice. Um, what does it mean that Google controls the platform right. all of school app is on across the country? It, it, I, like, I, I have a hard time getting my head around that. Uh, I think one implication is that the everything that the students are entering in, right, all of their, their answers, how, how long they're taking per question, uh, the way they're spelling things, um, even the, uh, the standard um, way that people incorrectly spell a word and then correct it, like all that stuff is fed into those machine learning algorithms. And then um, that information, by the way, should be the students, you know, or, or the teachers uh, belong to them, but instead it's the property of whatever company. And so, um, yeah, I think the pernicious thing down the road is probably some kind of dystopian Skynet, I don't know, where the teachers are basically being de-skilled because um, they're going to use some of that technology to um, to the point where teachers are, their their role is sort of slowly receding in the background and in the same way that like a loan officer got de-skilled by securitization, um, you know, a teacher could get de-skilled by um, all kinds of technology where um, they're, they're basically doing less and less. They're just kind of pressing buttons and um, I don't know if that's going too far. I don't know what you think about that, but I do think that that's probably what the goal of a lot of these companies is down the road is, you know, they're, they're trying to get rid of humans <laughs> so that they can just kind of like automate everything. Right. No, the, 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 um, you know, there are charter schools that use that model. There's a charter school network called Rocket Ship, which um, whose model is it in a big classroom, you know, uh, 90 kids in, in what is essentially a giant computer lab. And there's one teacher. And then yeah. a couple of people can basically work with students uh, on their computers. So, so a teacher will rotate around this huge, you know, sort of auditorium-sized classroom um, and give, you know, give instruction and help. But most of the time, the kids are actually working on a, on a program, which is, uh, you know, which, which it's, it's reading their answers and using some algorithm to, to, um, to, to give students new problems based on um, the kinds of responses they're doing, which really isn't teaching. I, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I can see the appeal from the point of view of capital. Uh, it's, you know, uh, an AI um, isn't going to take sick days. It's going to be a lot cheaper, ultimately. Um, it's certainly going to train students how to work at work terminals, um, you know, et cetera. Um, but uh, there's so many other parts of what this, the teacher-student relationship is about or should be about. You know, you're trying to make a human connection with someone and uh, listen to the things that they care about and and then generate les lessons based on what you hear and based on how things went. And, um, I, you know, I sort of really think that we're that the uh, education is a big, um, you know, that the education is in big trouble if, if teachers lose control of formative assessment. Um, I mean, I think that was bad enough that the, so many things have happened with um, summative assessment, um, you know, along the lines that we've just been talking about. But, but you know, GSD Ventures, you know, says, oh, the education marketplace is nine, whatever it is, a, you know, multi-trillion dollar marketplace, and we aim to disrupt it. You know, they, they want to be the Uber um, for the, you know, as Uber was the taxicab industry, these guys see themselves as being that for school industry. Um, you know, I and luckily I think we're a long way off from that. Um, but it would it would be foolish of us not to pay attention to what they're up to. Certainly. What are some ways that um, educators, parents, uh, community members, and so on could maybe start to um, you know uh, build a um, I guess a coalition that's you know, going to be ready to to brace that that kind of uh, that wave that's coming, what do you think we, we can do? Because I think that that's definitely um, in the cards soon. And you've got so much money behind it. I mean, the people in Silicon Valley are just, I mean, it's just billions of dollars are just throwing it away to these companies, uh, venture capitalist companies, the Teal Foundation and all that. I mean, it's just, right. it, they're just so well-funded that um, it's going to be difficult, I think, unless we have a real, um, you know, kind of a solid foundation Right. I mean, it, it's, it, and by the way, you know, like it's stuff you've heard of, like, you know, that you see these ads about masterclass where you can get Aaron Franklin to teach you about barbecue or whatever, <laughs> that's, you know, or whatever, you know, Steph Curry teaches you how to shoot a three pointer on, on a video, of course. Yeah. Um, then it's like, he comes to your house, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, or, or, or class dojo, or, you know, these are things which, which you've heard of, you know, that are getting a market foot 
foothold and these are all part of a big portfolio like i, mean, I just gsv's one like you know that i studied because they happen to have appointed um one of the managing partners to the board of ed and we thought that was outrageous because the board of ed is supposed to be you know the publicly interested oversight not the privately interested purveyor of something which are trying to sell schools while at the same time you're running the schools um you're, you're running the private thing as well um uh, but there's, yeah, I think you're, you're, there's a lot of them. And, um, and what do we do? Well, I think the first thing, you know, that I would say is, uh, I would just urge that um, parents, members of the community try to be involved in our schools and, and create some and, and create some relationships there. Uh, the, you know, I, it is it's, it's one of the things I wish our schools did a better job with, you know, the school door can kind of be a kind of impermeable, <laughs> it can be kind of a fortress door, it locks, it's not so, you know, if you've got a kid in there, maybe, but if not, even sometimes if you've got your kid in there, uh, it can be intimidating going to the school building. Um, but, you know, there are ways to get involved in schools, and, and I, would, I would recommend people try them. Um, you know, in Chicago, there's local school councils, your PTAs, etc. I mean, it shouldn't just be that, that uh, you know, ideologues and the Christian right are trying to get involved in, in, in school boards. Um, we, we, we should pay attention to that. Form a relationship with your kids' teachers, uh, um, you know, pay attention to those issues. Um, you know, so, so that's one thing. Um, second thing is that um, I do think that there are increasingly uh, a set of ed, of ed union, of, of teachers unions, um, in particular, that are, that are doing a better job raising the alarm about some of these issues. And that's, and, and, you know, th those struggles are going to be worth supporting. Um, you know, here we have, um, um, you know, we, we've campaigned, we certainly have campaigned about high stakes tests. There's, there's been a, you know, there, interestingly, during the pandemic, there's been, there's been a, a, a sort of a pause on a lot of high stakes testing. And then there's been an effort statewide to, um, to, you know, to, to, to uh, lessen the regime of high stakes tests. Um, one thing that I didn't say, by the way, about Isaac testing is how much just time it takes. <laughs> you know, he was, he wanted to 20 days a year. I've been swing. think about it. It's a, it's a big test in every subject that you're doing in the beginning, middle and the end of the year. And that's on top of any course assessment that you do. So, um, uh, so, so there's, there's been a big attempt to get people to lay off that. Um, and, and so there's campaigns on that stuff as well. Mm. And then uh, on the subject of sounding the alarm, I'm wondering how exactly would, what would that look like? Because I'm, I'm thinking just out loud, but I don't know that much of the public really has even everyday people, do they have a theory of education and do they understand what, um, you know, the implications of education technology taking over, how that would affect that theory, right? If they, if they parents think um, education is, that you, as you said, um, unlocking human potential, if if people, more people thought that or believed that, um, then they might be inclined to, um, you know, be more worried about what's going on. But at the moment, they might not really um, have any reason to worry. You know, they, they don't know. Okay, well, so we're using some new cloud platform from Amplify or whatever. Uh, how how does that affect me? Why is that a bad thing? You know, so should, do we need to engage in some kind of, um, I don't know, kind of public service uh, education campaign or something? Well, I, 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 yeah, I would hope so. I, I, I think most people at this point, you know, maybe, maybe we're cynical about it or near to it. Um, but, you know, we're at least aware that, that internet companies are collecting loads of data about us. Um, and, you know, if you don't believe me, just, um, you know, uh, you know, browse for like some new shoes or something and then see how many times that right. follows you around the internet. <laughs> right? um, uh, and, and we should really th think about what that is going to mean uh, for our students and for our children um, who, I mean, if, if, if their answers on tests, you know, or their, or their scores and there's things that are, that they're doing when they're in fifth grade um, are, are being attached to them and then follow them around the internet for the rest of their life. Um, that's really like, you know, I don't think we've fully thought through the consequences of that or how potentially harmful that could be for our children. Our children are, um, want to be able to experiment and, and, um, you know, learn in a free way that it, that isn't attached to a, um, to a digital profile, um, you know, which is being stored by someone and monetized and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, God, God forbid your kid have, you know, um, you know, a health crisis, a mental health crisis, whatnot. I mean, really, we don't, we don't want, 
um, we, we really should be on guard against against the way that is potentially misused. Um, I, so that's part of it. And the other thing I just would would uh, I always think is there is a particular way in which you know school education has been it, it, the, the, so much of the narrative of the American dream now runs through education. It's like you know, you're not going to go west and strike up your, your, your fortune. It might be so well, but um, but that's not the way we talk or think about it. When we think about uh, people, you know, making their fortune, it's because they, you know, they they got a set of skills in school, and that those skills allowed them to either get a great job or you know be able to be a software engineer and start a new internet, you know, or whatever. There's there's a, a lot of the way we think about our, um, upper class mobility gets tied into education now. Um, you know, I would just urge parents to think about all the experience they had when they were youth that, that were more important than things like tests and um, formal curriculum. You know, I mean, you know, I, I, I promise people will have a much clearer memory of, um, you know, their first kiss you know, um, or a time that they, you know, perform something well or et cetera, then they, or something, something that was embarrassing than they had of their first math test, uh, you know, or the, you know, or the time they gave a really good answer, um, you know, on their SAT. And so, you know, I, I do, I, I think that while I understand the way in which people feel insecure and, and driven to try to like get their kids to, uh, to, to be great at tests and in school and whatnot. I do wish people would be a little bit more supportive of children being children, um, exploring, um, developing as full human beings, the full range of things. I'm talking about sports, I'm talking about arts, I'm talking about performance, I'm talking about friendships, you know, et cetera. And I, I think that's that's healthy for society and for children. Sure. No, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I feel that, yeah, we are in danger. Well, I shouldn't say in danger. We already are, um, I think, pressuring students and kind of, um, I'd say almost uh, kind of perverting their childhoods and their experience of growing up by um, subordinating it to their abilities to I don't, kind of train for the corporate world. It's sort of we're kind of, uh, it's sort of like the, the junior Olympics of when you get into a job and it's basically, you're, you're kind of thrown into this grinding meritocratic gauntlet where you're kind of padding your resume all the way through your school years um, and into college and then you get out you pop out on the other side and you know you kind of just exploited yourself um, and alienated yourself from your own labor and now you have to basically go into one of these um, positions that you know based on the data no one who's in them actually even likes them i mean people who all the time if you're at court you're working on wall street people are gladly um, according to surveys you know take a, a huge pay cut so they don't have to work as much um, and, you know, everyone's just, their, their hours have been ratcheted up, you know. So it used to be you'd have banker's hours, which were like, I don't know, 10 to 3 with like a, a two-hour three-martini lunch or some whatever the uh, the the, um, the thing was. But then now it's like they're working, what, 60, 80 hours a week or something on Wall Street. So um, attorneys are working twice as much. I mean, everyone's just, it's um, it's just a grind. And we're... The rat race. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Our society is... Um, you know, there are many features of, of that what success looks like, um, you know, requires us to subordinate a whole bunch of ways in which sort of things that help our humanity, <laughs> our sanity and whatnot. I, you know, it's been interesting the degree to which the pandemic has uh, poked on some of that stuff. But, you know, but ultimately, I don't think it's going to, um, it's not going to fall apart because they're, you know, because our society went through a crisis, you know, it's going to require a more conscious effort on, on the part of people um, to, to intervene, to change the way institutions approach school, etc. Um, and, you know, like, like I said before, I, I do think that there, ha there have been some important changes, like in Chicago, for example, um, the, um, you know, when Rahm Emanuel went, um, the, you know, it's not like that we are, the current mayor isn't perfect, but, um, the, um, you know, far from it. Um, but the, but the, uh, the combined pressure, uh, of the, uh, of the educating justice movements, series of strikes, etc., um, has produced like the, we, we've not entirely gotten rid of, but we've, we've dramatically reduced the amount, um, uh, the, the high stakes tests, 
Uh, it used to be that something like 19 out of 21 measures on the report cards, school report cards, were just high stakes tests, aggregated or disaggregated in different ways. Um, that's been dramatically reduced. So you know, you wind up with, with with school report cards that are much more about things that that um, the you or I would say, well, how do, how do people do on a survey? You know, are there high expectations for students? Um, is the building clean and well managed? Like you know, um, you know. What's the climate and culture like around bullying? Those are things that are now showing up on school report cards that that literally uh, even five years ago weren't. Um, so there, you know, there's some advantage there. Um, uh, like I said, you know, we, there's a there's a moratorium uh, in Illinois right now uh, on a whole number of features of, of high stakes tests. There was an attempt recently, for example, to extend the high stakes testing down to preschool um, that we were able to, we were able to fight off. Uh, so. Um, you know, I do have some, I, I, you know, this is a two, this is two-sided. It's not, it's just a, this is just a one-sided dynamic where, where there's sort of inexorable drives towards this stuff where we're going to have the ability to fight back against some of that. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on something that I've been trying to work through and I, I really don't have an answer for it, but I'm trying to think about how do we lever, or I would say straddle the line between having, um, you know, a lot of in, in uh, local uh, autonomy for individual schools and communities and, and say districts or, or even counties, let's say states, I guess, um, on one hand, and then having some kind of standard kind of American curriculum, you know, nation, national, nationwide on the other. Um, because I think on one hand, you give a lot of autonomy. It's obviously good, you know, kind of in, in a direct democratic sense, but then I'm wondering, is there a danger of giving too much autonomy in the sense of, you know, one part of the country, they, I don't know, choose to teach about Adam Smith and the Bible, and then another part of the country teaches only about, I don't know, post-colonial literature or something. And, you know, another, I mean, I'm caricatures, obviously, but the point is that if there's too much, too much choice and too much um, variety, then, I don't know, you pop out on the other side and you've got uh, graduates who... I don't know, they're not even part of the same country. They don't have a sense of shared civic identity um, and uh, maybe they don't have a shared sense of civic duty to one another. They just kind of grew up in these sort of isolated you know, pockets. Um, so how do we straddle that between um, giving people choice and, and how their you know, the students and communities are educated, but also having something that's more somewhat to some degree homogenous so that we're all you know, members of the same country, let's say. Well, one thing I don't think that we can do is really narrowly tailor a national curriculum, because I, I do think that um, uh, there, there are sets of experiences that students have that are part of their lives. Uh, and it's going to, you know, I grew up, for example, in a part of the country where people hunt deer. Um, and you'd be surprised, at, and my mom taught writing, um, you know, and, and she used to give a whole, I can remember her talking about these essays and giving these essays to grade and whatnot, or she'd give a whole bunch of essays about students' first experience going out hunting deer. And, you know, because you'd be out there, you know, 13, 14 years old with a rifle, and the first time you shoot something, like, you know, and, and bring it home to feed the family or whatever, it was a big, it was a big coming of age experience. And people used to write about that and talk about it, and think about it a lot. My mom managed to get a lot of really, like, important self-reflective writing out of students on that topic uh, that would be me in this topic in Chicago no one no one could maybe you could get someone to relate to it for a minute but it's not what people are going to be interested in um you know I in Chicago we, I used to teach a class called street law or, or law in American society and kids were really interested in that they had a lot of experience with the car you know with, with, with uh, the carceral justice system or injustice system um you know, they were really interested in fairness because they didn't think the legal system was fair. Um, they were interested in their rights. Uh, you know, that might not be the same dynamic in the suburbs. You know, um, there's just like a, there's a lot of different ways that I think that we have to like relate to students based on, on their experiences. So I wouldn't try to, wouldn't say, well, let's construct, construct a fairly narrow curriculum. I think we would have to basically try to, uh, and nor do I think that the sort of the way that, um, um, uh, you, you know, the, the, the standards-based, the, the new standards-based curriculum um, uh, went about 
trying to do this where you where you have like really intense just lots and lots of skills based stuff really gets at it either um i think you have to basically try to construct the curriculum as wide enough that you that it could incorporate different patterns of study within it um but tries to um but then but then basically says that we're going to ask sort of um we're going to ask you to produce writing or summative assessment um, in which you're going to in which you're, you're not going to be able to just study the one set of things narrowly that you know you're going to get asked about some other traditions or some other pieces um, so that, that encourages schools or teachers to to have to teach more broadly um, you know the the um, you know, I think about like think about it in terms of you know I taught social studies so history history curriculum and you know I mean you could you could do quite a lot by studying U.S. history and it's quite U.S. history a lot of important stuff interesting um, but you know um, if the if at the end of the day uh, students were going to ask get asked some questions about other parts of the world as well then then it would it would it would be a disincentive for schools to, to only ask about you know about about u.s history and not and, and not have to think about well how do other people other how do folks in other parts of the world deal with these same sort of issues or how do they see folks in the u.s or how, how might they you know we're talking about world war ii how would world war ii have been different if you were in you know whatever um if you were in africa if you were in eastern europe if you were uh if you were in russia uh, you know or, or whatever it is so um i that's a couple of thoughts and, and you know i'm maybe not particularly systematic but I, I would hope that we um yeah i would hope that we have some ability to um um have some shared understandings and some shared things of study um without being too prescriptive gotcha well, Jesse, I want to be mindful of your time. I really appreciate this. Um, where, can, um, where can people find you? What are you up to in terms of the labor movement? Or I know you're back to teaching, um, but is there is there any uh, kind of projects you're working on uh, for the CTU in particular or uh, I mean, in right now I'm teaching in a classroom and uh, <laughs> trying to get my Z legs back. It's been, a, you know, a, a, I, was, I was 12 years out of the classroom and, and there's a bunch of stuff that's changed. So I'm trying to be good at that and uh, um you know man at the end, end of the day your feet are tired and your voice hurts and you know there's a bunch of things about classroom teaching that are hard so that's what i'm doing and you know i i, I would urge people the the you know there's the there's the new leadership in the ctu is led by stacy davis gates um who's now the president and she's dynamic and and uh, i think doing great work uh, i would urge people to follow the ctu um and i'm continuing to be a member of my union and um, you know, I'm trying to write an occasional, I just wrote an article for Labor Notes. I've actually got to go edit it uh, after this a little bit. Cool. And, um, uh, you know, I, I would urge people to stay, um, um, you know, just to stay reading about educational justice and stay engaged. Wonderful. Well, Jesse, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Um, I'm sure my listeners will have enjoyed it as much as I did. And um, let's stay in touch. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nevada. Have a, have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the No Faction Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider subscribing. Thank you.